I sometimes wonder, and I don't know, guys, if you're like me at all, I sometimes wonder if, if I meet the, the qualifications for being described as manly. And some of you are laughing. Now, that's not, that wasn't a joke. That wasn't a setup. Uh, that's not a joke at all. I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, guys, I don't know if you, if, if you struggle with that. You know, am I, could I be described as, as manly? I, I don't fix things. I can't. I can't work with my hands. In fact, my, my high school baseball coach once told me, and I probably have mentioned this to you before, but when I was in high school and playing baseball and we would go out to work on the field and we would have to lay sod or rake the field or do whatever it was, he looked at me and he said, Burns, he said, I hope you find a job one day where you can use your mind. He said, because if you have to use your hands, you're going to starve to death. <laughs> I can't fix things. And he was right, and... Thankfully, my job does not require me to do much with my hands, and so my family can eat. That's good. I don't have a beard. You know, some of you this morning, maybe you've got great beards or facial hair. I mean, you know, I don't. mine turns kind of reddish when it comes out, and so it's just, I, you know, it, I can't, I don't, I'm not very tall. Uh, in fact, Mark and I were talking this week, and they were talking about getting flowers, and he came in to measure to make sure that it wasn't too tall. And I said, Mark, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I don't... I don't want to have to get the stool, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, this is perfect. I don't, I don't have to stand way, you know. I'm not very intimidating. You know, I'm not. I've just, you know, I've, I, I've never played a game of organized football. I've never had a pair of shoulder pads and a helmet on. Uh, I'm not into the ultimate fighting, you know, that mixed martial arts stuff. I'm not into any of that stuff. I, I, I've never really thought that I met all the qualifications of being called real manly, but I came across a list this week that, that gives me a little bit of hope. I came across the list of the 50 manliest cities in the United States. Now, Murray, of course, was not eligible because it took, now listen, it took the biggest 50 cities. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about Murray. If they took all the, the 50 manliest small towns, we'd just line up our guys in here and we'd win, obviously. That's not a joke, ladies, it really. <laughs> this isn't starting well at all. None of this is a joke. <clears throat> the top 50 metropolitan areas in the United States were judged based upon a variety of categories. Here's, here's some of the categories. They, they, they judged based upon sports, the number of major league sports teams, uh, nearby NASCAR events, other running and racing events. That's including the sports category. Then they had a category uh, called manly lifestyle, which included things like bowling and fishing and woodworking and home improvement work. And again, you know, I look at this stuff and I think, oh my goodness, you know, I, there's no way I qualify. Then they looked at businesses. And, and then the cities that were rated highest had a high concentration of home improvement stores, of barbecue restaurants, and steakhouses. Isn't that great? <clears throat> uh, then, then they looked at, at things that would cost the city points. You lost points for driving foreign cars and minivans. You lost points for a high concentration of home decor stores for coffee shops, sushi restaurants, modern men's apparel stores, and high levels of subscriptions to Martha Stewart Living, Vanity Fair, and Vogue magazines. <laughs> you lost points for that. Now, the top five manliest cities in the United States, number five was Birmingham, Alabama. Number four was Nashville, so we're close. We're, we're, we, we, can we call ourselves part of Nashville metropolitan area? We're just a <laughs> suburb. But Nashville was last year's winner, the manliest city in the United States last year. Memphis was number three. So we're, you know, kind of, you know, we're the, the great triangle. It's Nashville, Murray, Memphis, we're all there. Uh, <clears throat> Columbia, South Carolina was number two. 
and Oklahoma City was number one. Now, the reason I got some hope from this is because Louisville was number 11, up two spots from last year. I'm from Louisville. It had to rub off somehow. <laughs> I'm considering myself now manly because I'm from the 11th manliest city in the United States. The least manly of the top 50 cities, Los Angeles was number 46. Boston was 47, Oakland, California, 48, San Francisco, California, 49, and San Diego, California, number 50. California's just not manly. Now, if you're from, if you're from California, then I'm sorry, but you just, you're not from a manly part of the world, apparently. Every, every man, I'm sure now, in the top five manliest cities now has a man card that identifies them as a true man because you were from a manly city. Now, if such cards actually existed and you were given a man card to identify you as a true man, I wonder what really would the qualifications be? I want to give you a starting point this morning that I can tell you that, uh, that is absolutely true. Uh, a starting point for us to think about, how would you receive a man card to identify you as a true? Is it, is it because you're from a manly city? Because you go to Lowe's or to Ace Hardware or wherever it is and you work around the house? Is it because you can fix things? What is it? I can give you at least a starting point, though, and tell you that God's definition of manhood is much different from the world's. God's definition of manhood is much different from the world's. In many cases, that goes without saying, but just in case you need a reminder, a refresher, or maybe this is the first time you've heard it, realize that God's definition of manhood is very, very different from how the world would define manhood. God's categories probably wouldn't include sports and a manly lifestyle and businesses, and you may not even lose points in God's economy for manliness if you subscribe to Martha Stewart Living. I don't know. But, but the world's definition, and we'll see this as this plays out in Scripture today, we're going to look at a guy named David in the Old Testament who really in his story is kind of set apart and juxtaposed, to use a fancy word, set apart from a guy named Saul who became the first king of Israel. David and Saul are really a contrasting element in Scripture. The world's definition of manliness and manhood is really about what Saul, King Saul, was about. In 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 10, you have the run-up to Saul being made king. Now, the the nation of Israel at this time had no king. They were ruled by God himself. The prophets and the priests basically regulated everything to be sure they were on track with the Lord. And yet the people began to say, we want a king like everyone else. We want a king who's powerful. We want a king who's intimidating. And in fact, the scripture records that Saul, when he's lined up against everybody else, was a head taller than everyone else. He was a powerful, intimidating figure, an impressive-looking guy. Things haven't changed very much. The nation defined a great man as someone who just had a great image, and that's the same in our world today. Image, the appearance of youth, holding on to your youth, achievement, accolades, performance, whether it's athletically or sexually or vocationally, those are all descriptors in our world today of great manliness or doing manly things or maybe even living or being from a manly city. That's the world's definition of what manhood is all about. Now, the results are pretty obvious, too. Those men who operate and are defined by the world's system of manliness 
have a lot of bravado. They talk a pretty big game. But unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion over what a real man is and is to be. There's a significant amount of arrogance. Uh, you see that, obviously, uh, all over the place. Unfortunately, between men, uh, quite often, there's, there's a high degree of competition over things that really have no scoreboard, that there's no particular need for competition. What all this has resulted from and us being defined by the world has led to a, to, to a lack of depth in our character. Unfortunately, many men, and I'm not calling anyone out here, obviously, but many men lack depth in their character. It's led to high divorce rates and fatherless homes because we're so confused and we don't know who we are and who we are to be. God's definition is very different from the world's. The world's is based on image and performance and achievement. God's definition is quite different. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in 1 Samuel. It's over in the Old Testament, toward the beginning. If you need to look it up in the table of contents, please do. I hope you bring your Bible with you. We try to put the verses on the screen, but I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word to be able to follow along and follow up later on in the week. 1 Samuel chapter 13 And look at verse 13. Here's what's happened so far. Saul, the king, has disobeyed God. He's offered a sacrifice that only the priest is to offer. And so now Samuel, the prophet, comes to him and says to Saul in verse 13, You have been foolish. You have not kept the command of the, which the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have you permanently establish your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Other versions will say the Lord has found a man after his own heart. That's the traditional rendering. Maybe some of you are familiar with that version. He's talking here, Samuel is talking about the fact that the Lord has now chosen David to be king. David, a man who is after God's heart, a man who is loyal to the Lord, a man who is obedient. God's definition of manhood is not built on image or externals, but on character. It's built on integrity and godliness and commitment. Not on the things that initially impress people. You probably have gotten to know someone, and maybe at first you were so impressed with them. But the closer you get, the more layers you peel back, the less impressed you are. The world is impressed by externals, and we can fake it and impress all kinds of people. But God himself is not impressed with anything but being after his heart, being loyal to him, obedient to him. Certainly David is presented as this kind of man. Jesus would eventually be presented as the ultimate man whose heart was absolutely set on the things of God. We see the definition of manhood is vastly different in God's economy than in the world's. I want to tell you who this sermon is for this morning. The sermon is certainly for men on Father's Day. You may be a father, you may not be. You may be a married man, you may not be married. I I don't believe that this is for specifically just fathers or just married men, but it's for men because we need you. We really do. I don't know if you'll hear that anywhere else, but we need you. If you're a man, you are absolutely vital and you are needed. Unfortunately, our world has marginalized men and pushed them to the sides and made them the, the butt of many jokes. 
But guys, we need you. We, we not only need you, but we need you to be a man of God. We don't just need men, we need men of God. We can rally lots of men together at sporting events, but it does us no good unless we rally men of God together. We need men of God. Not only to be a man of God, but we need men of God who are on a mission for Jesus. Whose lives have a purpose, not just unto themselves, but a purpose for the Savior, Jesus Christ. We need men of God who who are living on purpose for Jesus Christ. And even beyond that, we need men who are men of God, who live on mission for Jesus, who lead the way in their marriages. We need men who lead the way with their children. We need men who lead the way in this church, who lead the way in their jobs. We need men who lead the way where you go to school, wherever you go in a given week. This sermon is for men because we need you. This is a sermon also for women. Because we need your prayers. There is an all-out attack on true manhood in our world today. Certainly we could say the same about women as well, but there is an attack on manhood to marginalize men, to shove them to the side, to tell them they don't matter, that we don't need them, that they're unimportant. But we need your prayers, ladies. We really do. Prayers for your husband, prayers for your father, prayers for your sons, prayers for your brothers. Prayers for those men that are in this church that you interact with, that you see each week. We need your prayers. We also need you not to compromise. If you're a lady here who's unmarried, I want to challenge you and encourage you as you listen to this sermon to set your sights on the kind of man that God defines as a man. If you're an unmarried woman, don't compromise. Not for a second. Trust the Lord. Let him bring the man into your life that needs to be there. Do not compromise. Ladies, we also need your encouragement. Most of the time, since we're in this great competition, we fail. We feel like we're falling behind. Guys, I'll let the cat out of the bag. We feel like the deck is always stacked against us, that we'll never catch up, that we can't ever do enough, and we feel pitiful most of the time. We need your encouragement. We need your encouragement based upon biblical principles, not just, hey, buddy, good job. We need your encouragement saying, you're the man of God that I want to be with. You're the man of God that I love. Ladies, if you're married to a man of God, he needs your encouragement. If your father is a man of God, he needs your encouragement. About your sons, they need encouragement. We also, we need your reinforcement. We need this to be something that we say, yes, we need our men. Yes, we need men of God. We need your prayers, we need you not to compromise. We need your encouragement. We need your reinforcement. If we look at the requirements for receiving a man card from God, fellas, I hope you'll pay attention. Ladies, I hope you'll reinforce this with your husbands, your fathers, your sons, your brothers. We're going to look this morning at the man that God identified as the one after his own heart, David, who, of course, grew up as a shepherd boy in Bethlehem, was anointed king, very early in his life, became king much later. And the part of the story that we're going to see today is one that even if you have never picked up a Bible, even if you had no idea there was a book called 1 Samuel in the Bible, you have heard at least something about this particular story of David versus Goliath. There's a great movie theme as well. And in fact, what's interesting is even people who are absolute heathens will refer to a story as David against Goliath. I love that they have to use a biblical reference for that. 
I love that. I love that it's become so cultural that we just have to speak words of Scripture. But anyway, the part of the story we'll see today is where David demonstrates several qualities of biblical manhood that will serve as a challenge for our men and as some great instruction for our ladies as we help our men become these kinds of guys. The man card requirement number one is faithfulness in obscurity. Faithfulness in obscurity. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 23. And we're kind of picking this up in the middle of the story, obviously, but David has come to the battle lines. There's a battle going on between the Israelites and the Philistines. And Goliath has already made his presence known, and here David will show up. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the household of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for, this, for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people told him about the offer, concluding that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened, to the, listened as he spoke to the men. He became angry. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now, protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. If you notice a little bit about the story of David, you realize this is really his first foray into public life. He, he just happens to show up that particular day, realizes what's going on, and said, hey, I'll, I'll try to do something about this. Then he has a, a conversation with the king, and the king looks at him, this teenage boy who was not very manly looking, not very intimidating whatsoever, and says, there's no way. You, you, you're joking. There's no way that you can go against this huge guy when you're just a little kid. But what's interesting, David doesn't cite all of his military qualifications. He doesn't try to run through the list of how incredibly manly he is and all the things that he's done. All he recounts to the king is, look, when nobody was watching, I've been faithful. When nobody knew what was going on, that's when I learned to be excellent in all areas. He recounts uh, tending the sheep. Being a shepherd is a pretty boring job. Occasionally, there's a little bit of excitement. David tells about that, that he has to rescue the sheep and so on. But David has learned to be faithful even in obscurity. Guys, I wonder this morning, 
Do you do everything with excellence in every area of life? If you're honest this morning, if you're truly honest in every area that you can, wherever you may go, do you do everything you can to the very best of your ability, even if no one sees it, even in absolute obscurity, when no one's paying attention? Do you realize that nothing is local? Meaning, meaning everything you do, everything that you're about spills everywhere into every area of your life. You've probably experienced that, fellas. You begin to slack up in one particular area, and it makes it easier to slack up in another particular area. You think nobody's watching, who cares what I do? And then that becomes a habit and a pattern. I wonder if in the unexciting, in the unrecognized, in the unappreciated areas of your life, how you doing? That's where you spend most of your time, you know doing things that are unexciting, doing things that are unrecognized, things that are unappreciated, nobody cares. That's where you spend most of your time, so you might as well get used to it. Still encouraging. But go after it. Because God knows. God is watching. And it all matters. It all adds up in your marriage, in your pursuit of education, in your job, in your parenting, in the daily grind. Every single moment matters because that's where you're prepared for the larger issues of life. Flip back just a page or two in your Bible there to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 18 and 19 give us an indication here of, of how David was just faithful and what happened as a result of that. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. One of the young men answered. They're, they're looking, Saul here is looking for someone who plays the harp well and can, can, can sing to him and so on. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Isn't it interesting how David is faithful in obscurity, and these are the things that are said about him. Then David, then Saul, rather, dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Total obscurity. David says, I'll be faithful to the Lord. I really believe that many people fail at the next stage of life because of how they operated in the previous stage of life. David was able to be successful as a king because he had been successful as a shepherd when no one was watching. The patterns and the habits that are established, that, that, that will take you into the next stage, are established long before you ever get there. Many of you know my son Hank is playing baseball this year, and he's seven years old, and and we're working on some things for him skill-wise that, that really are, are meant to get him to the next stage. I'm really not so much concerned about his personal success right now or even the team's success right now as much as I am laying the foundation for what will help him down the road. Now you can understand what I'm saying as you relate to that. Another example in that would be if you're a, if you're a young man here, or maybe even an older man, you realize that you're fulfilling or lack of fulfilling things like your general commitments to be at work on time and so on, how that spills over and prepares you. If you're a young man, you're in a, let's say you're, you're a, uh, an unmarried young man, you've got young men in your life like that, let me tell you the best advice you can give them, how do you be a great husband one day? Will you start now by fulfilling every commitment that you have? Because one day, 
That'll just be your habit. And you won't even think about not fulfilling those commitments because you've always been a commitment filler. One stage leads to the next. It's faithfulness and obscurity. One decision at a time. That's how life is built or destroyed. One decision at a time. That's how children are raised or forfeited. One decision at a time. That's how a marriage lasts or is ended. One decision at a time. It's faithfulness over a long period of time. David was alone with the sheep in solitude. He lived in obscurity. Nobody paying attention to him. Nobody even cared that he existed. In fact, his dad almost forgot that he was there when Samuel came, Samuel came to anoint a king. He said, oh yeah, we got one more boy. He's out with the sheep. Total obscurity. David was faithful even in the monotonous stuff of life. Every day the same thing. Maybe your life, fellas, seems that way. You just go to work and you do the same thing over and over and over. And what does it matter? Faithfulness and obscurity. The great and sometimes it seems unfortunate truth is that God is never in a hurry when he's building our lives. He's never in a hurry, fellas, when he's building you into the man that he wants you to be. But in the process, he'll never lead you astray. You can trust him. You can follow him. He'll never waste an experience that you have. So don't discount anything from your past. God can and he will often use it when you least expect it. The first requirement is faithfulness and obscurity. The second is loyalty to the name of God. Loyalty to the name of God. Look again in 1 Samuel chapter, 20, uh, chapter 17, rather, verse 26. 1 Samuel 17, 26. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then verse 36. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. It's as if David is saying, Why are you standing here letting this guy do this? He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine, which means he doesn't follow God in any way. That was a derogatory statement toward this man, Goliath, to say, Who is he that we should fear him? Who in the world is this guy? Anyway, he doesn't even follow the Lord. We fear the Lord only. David's words were ones of saying, Guys, what are... Why are we standing around shaking in our boots? Let's go after it. And then his actions, he's willing to say and to do what no one else would say and do. Everyone around David had forgotten. They had abandoned their loyalty to the Lord, but not David. Everyone else lived in fear of this giant that they encountered, but not David. Everyone else had lost the blessing and the help from the Lord, but not David. Because he's loyal, fiercely loyal to the name of God. I want you to know, fellas... That if you're loyal to the name of the Lord, there will be very few people standing with you. Very, very few people will stand with you. Unfortunately, statistics will tell you that even very few Christians will stand with you in that extreme loyalty to the name of God. And yet, throughout Scripture, we see calls to constant loyalty to the Lord. The Ten Commandments, the first four, all about loyalty to the Lord. Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. Absolute loyalty. We need men who will go beyond just being good men. I'm thankful for good men, but we need men who will go beyond being just good. Who will go beyond just earning a living. Who will go beyond just providing for their families. We need men who will do all those things. Because first and foremost, they love Jesus. 
First and foremost, they are loyal to him. We need men who will serve Jesus with a loyalty that spills over into their marriages, over into their children, into their jobs, their daily activities, even their obscurity. I love how Joshua puts it in the 24th chapter of the book. Joshua 24, 15. He says, you all figure out what you're going to do, who you're going to serve. He says, as for me and my house, for me and my family, we, we will serve the Lord. He's willing to stand alone, to be loyal to the name of God. You want to receive a man card from God, be faithful in obscurity, be loyal to the name of God, and thirdly, have courage in the face of great opposition. Courage in the face of great opposition. You realize Goliath was real? He was real. This, this story in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is not written as a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a great big man named Goliath. B-5-fold pump. That's not what we're talking about. It's written as a battle account, a historical account of what actually happened. If you believe the Bible, and the Bible can be believed and can be trusted, it is an absolutely reliable document, this is not a fairy tale. He was real. Why does that matter? If it wasn't real, David had nothing to fear. If it wasn't real, this story doesn't even matter. It's just some picture of, well, if you encounter a hard time, and operate this way. He was real. He was also big. Look at verse 3, chapter 17. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. You realize that's, that's four feet taller than I am? I'm giving myself an inch right there. It's actually four feet and one inch taller than I am. But, I, you know, thanks again for the flowers. Nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. 125, that's armor. That's what he's wearing. He's huge. He's also intimidating. Look at verse 6. There was a bronze armor on his shins and a bronze sword slung between his shoulders. Imagine running into this guy. Nine feet, nine inches tall. He stands across the ravine in all this gear and with a big spear. He's intimidating. He's also powerful. Look at verse 7. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. This is what he carried around. Carrying 125 pounds in armor, 15 pounds, just kind of no big deal for this guy. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He's powerful. And he's also relentless. Look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out and line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they lost their courage and they were terrified. Then look at verse 16. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. He's relentless. He's huge. He's intimidating. He's powerful. He's relentless. And yet, David is courageous. You say, how in the world? Could this little teenager be so courageous in the face of this giant warrior who, humanly speaking, of course, he had no chance in a fist fight against Goliath? 
But David had been there before in obscurity. David had faced enemies just like this, that bear, that lion. David had already been there before in obscurity. When nobody's watching, he'd learned courage. David also knew the Lord. You see his words. Why do we let this guy defy the armies of Israel? Why do we let him defy and talk bad about our God? David knew the Lord and he trusted the Lord, which gave him great courage. And as we see as a story unfolds what David does, he tries on the armor of the king, which hangs down. Looks like it needs to be taken up a little bit in certain areas and tightened. And he just looks at the king and says, I can't wear this stuff. This doesn't fit me at all. Not only does it not feel right, but it's not what I'm going to use in this battle. He goes to the stream and he grabs his five stones and he takes his sling. And what's, to me, so amazing about the story is he doesn't try to get around figure out how to sneak up on Goliath and smack him in the back of the head with one of those rocks. He mans up, faces him, and he runs for it. Courage in the face of great opposition because he had been there before in obscurity because he knew the Lord because he trusted God. You and I face lots of giants in our lives. Great opposition. Fellas, you know that as a man, as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a church member, whomever you might be playing the role for today, guys, you face great opposition in your lives. And Jesus talked about it in John chapter 10. He says that the thief, talking about Satan, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 8, says that Satan is, is like a roaring lion who's, who's out to see whom he can devour. Guys, you face great opposition. I wonder if you have courage, godly courage in the face of all that opposition. It's as if it's late in the game and it's in extra innings. The game's on the line. Are you the kind of person who wants the ball hit to you or hit to someone else? <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can be a godly husband. I don't know if I can be a godly father. I don't know if I can do all those things. David ran toward his opposition, leaned right into it and said, because I know the Lord and because I trust Him, because He's great, all this is possible. Have courage to be a man who loves Jesus. Courage to fight for and to build your marriage. Courage to chart a different course with your family as a father to children who desperately need Jesus. The easy thing is to blend in with all the Israelites standing back, shaking in their boots easy to fall in line with those who back down from great opposition, but be like David, who ran toward the opposition. Courage in the face of great opposition, and finally, humility in spite of personal achievement. The results of David versus Goliath were pretty incredible. David, of course, kills the giant, cuts off his head, carries it around for a while, which I'm sure was just as big as David. I mean, think about a nine-foot, nine-inch head. Here he is, he carries it around, he's got his own sword, which probably was just as tall as David, and David celebrates, and not only does David celebrate, but all the people do as well. David, what an incredible guy. In chapter 18, they would say, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. It's almost as if David could just be ushered to the throne. After all, he's already been anointed as king. God's already told Saul, it's over David's going to be the next king. He could have ridden this wave of popularity straight to the top. 
But what's so amazing about David is that he never got ahead of God. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we won't read the verses for the sake of time, but let me catch you up on the story. David has an opportunity when Saul comes into a cave where David is hiding. And Saul comes in to relieve himself, the Bible says. And so there he is in a very vulnerable position, and David is hiding. And all the men around David say, now's your chance. You're going to be king anyway. Take advantage of it. David sneaks up, and he cuts off a corner of the robe that Saul was wearing. And immediately, what's amazing, immediately he's hit with conviction. He says, no, 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 I'm getting ahead of God. Even my personal success, my personal achievement does not mean that now I am in control. And he repents and he tells Saul, let me tell you this, I will not raise a hand against God's anointed, he says. I'm not going to get ahead of God. Yes, I'm to be king. And yes, you're to be deposed from the throne. But I'm not going to get ahead of God. He never took revenge, never took advantage of his success. He never let his guard down. He never began to coast He simply went about the things that pleased God before, even after his personal success. So guys, after a promotion, after a raise, after a successful business project or a major accomplishment or some achievement by your kids, how will you respond? I firmly believe that what is revealed in people when they have success is what has been there all along. You just get more of it. Because what the, the foundation that was laid was laid long before. You often wonder to someone, what happened to them? They had success and now they're an absolute jerk. Well, probably before then they were an absolute jerk. You just didn't know it. Probably before then they hadn't laid down the right kind of patterns of humility in their lives, even before success. So what do you do when you've been faithful in obscurity and God elevates you? What do you do when you've been loyal to the name of God and He rewards you? What do you do when you've had courage in the face of great opposition and God has made you victorious? You remain humble, knowing that the elevation, that the reward, that the victory, they all come from the Lord anyway. But Even the ability to accomplish those things has come from the Lord, knowing that apart from Him you can do nothing, that without Him your achievements last only for this lifetime. You remain humble. Fellas, you're likely to experience some measure of personal achievement in your life, in your job, in your home, whatever it may be. There will be times of great personal achievement for most, if not all, of the men here. How will you respond? Go back to Hank's baseball team for one last illustration. We played the other night, and it was a battle of two winless teams. Both teams were 0, 10, and 1, our team and the other team. And we wound up winning the game. And I knew that it's never too early to teach humility in spite of personal achievement, and so gathered the team together before we shake hands. And I looked those little boys, the seven- and eight-year-old boys in the eyes, they're so excited, finally won their first game. And I said, guys, let me tell you something. That other team still hadn't won a game. I said, you can celebrate when you get back to the dugout. I said, but until then, you shake their hand, you tell them good game, you walk back off the field as if nothing has just happened, and we'll celebrate when we get back to the dugout. 
Those little boys, they, they, they nodded and they looked and they went right through that line. They shook hands. They said, good game, good game, good game, good game. You know how it goes. And they all went back to the dugout. And then finally we were able to celebrate. And then what we did was we get our hands together. You know, we pile them all up like this. We shout one, two, three, reds. That's our team. And, and, and so everybody wants to count one, two, three. They don't care if they shout reds. They just want to be the one who counts. So what we did for that game was everybody got to, got to count. Everybody, because everybody contributed to it. Somehow along the way, we lose those things as we get older. And instead of crediting others, or especially crediting the Lord for success, remaining humble in those things, we like to take credit for it. To thump our chest just a little bit, to rub it into someone else. Fellas, be humble in spite of personal achievement. Teach it to your brothers and your sons and fathers. Teach it to whomever you come into contact with. Teach humility, remaining faithful to the Lord, giving credit to Jesus for your personal achievement. I wonder, fellas, as you evaluate it this morning, are you a man according to the world's standards or according to God's? You're going to have to make a choice. You cannot have it both ways. It cannot happen both ways. If your life is based upon image, your accomplishments, your money, your job, your perceived success, then unfortunately, I have to tell you that you are a man based upon the world's definition, if that's what your life is based on. I wonder if God is handing out man cards today, would you receive one? Certainly we know David would because his heart was set on following the Lord. You look at a guy like David, and as great as his example is, he's just a shadow, just a preview of Jesus Christ, who would come as the ultimate man, God in human flesh. And following David's example, we're only practicing, unfortunately, good morality if we leave Jesus out of the equation. Jesus would say in John chapter 15, verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can be a good man, but apart from Jesus, unfortunately, you're still nothing. Because Jesus plus nothing else equals everything. You guys, imagine yourself as a man, the kind of man God wants you to be. Imagine yourself as a husband, the kind God wants you to be. Imagine yourself as a father, the kind God wants you to be, as a worker, as a student, as a retired man, the kind that God wants you to be. Imagine our church filled with men who are made by God himself, cut from a different cloth, men in the truest sense of the word. You say, I want to be that man. I hope so. My prayer is that you'll say, I want to be that man. But maybe if you're honest, you'd admit, you know, right now, though, I'm defined by the world and not by God. I realize I'm not being faithful. I realize I'm not loyal to the Lord. I'm not courageous. I've, I've disengaged from the battle. I've given up in my fight for my marriage and my children and my home, my job. I'm not, I'm not fighting anymore for those things. Or maybe you realize I'm just so arrogant. My pride controls my life. The answers are very simple to that. Lord, I repent. God, it's sin. I repent. I believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and power over sin. Lord, I repent. I surrender to you. Lord, live in me. Live through me. Take control of me. That's your prayer today if you realize you're defined by the world. If you would, I'd like for you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a second. In just a moment, of course, we'll close with a, with a song. But before we do that, I don't want to embarrass any of our men here today at all. 
I want to pray for you. Maybe you say, you know what? I'm not the kind of man that you talked about this morning who's faithful, who's loyal, who's courageous, who's humble, whose heart is set on Jesus Christ. I'm not that kind of man, but that's the man I want to be. Would you pray for me? I'm not trying to call you out or embarrass you in any way, so I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come down forward and give a testimony. But so that I can pray for you and you can be accountable before the Lord and before your pastor. All I'd like to know is if that's, you say, I want to be that man, but I know I'm not there. Would you pray for me? Just ask you to lift your eyes and make eye contact, and I'll pray for you. Be happy to. Gentlemen, you are not alone. You are not alone. Don't let Satan get you in a corner and beat you up. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men who are so honest. To say, that's not the man I am right now, but Lord, make me that kind of man. So God, that's our prayer. That you would take what we are as sinful creatures and you would transform it into something that glorifies you. Lord, may we be submissive to you beginning now. And Lord, as we face the world this week, God, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to be the kind of men that you've created us to be. Lord, I thank you for each man who's made eye contact this morning. I pray especially for them, God, in their struggles to be the kind of man that they know they need to be. God, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, may our lives be wrapped up in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you'd encourage them this week. That you would bring blessings into their lives. That you would set their feet on solid ground. That you would teach them and surround them with people who love them and will pray for them. That you'd give them courage, Lord, this week to live for you, to love Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for the men here, for the wonderful husbands and fathers and men that we have in this church. Lord, as we submit to you, we know that you will change us and make us into what you want us to be. We thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.